Book Five, Part Two, of the Histories by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lenny. The Histories by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Brodrib. Book Five. January to November, A.D. 70, Part 2. Prodigies had occurred, which this nation, prone to superstition, but hating all religious rites, did not deem it lawful to expiate by offering and sacrifice. There had been seen hosts joining battle in the skies, the fiery gleam of arms, the temple illuminated by a sudden radiance from the clouds. The doors of the inner shrine were suddenly thrown open, in a voice of more than mortal tone was heard to cry that the gods were departing. At the same instant there was a mighty stir as of departure. Some few put a fearful meaning on these events, but in most there was a firm persuasion that in the ancient records of their priests was contained a prediction of how at this very time the East was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire universal empire. These mysterious prophecies had pointed to Vespasian and Titus, but the common people, with the usual blindness of ambition, had interpreted these mighty destinies of themselves, and could not be brought even by disasters to believe the truth. I have heard that the total number of the besieged, of every age in both sexes, amounted to six hundred thousand. All who were able bore arms, and a number, more than proportionate to the population, had the courage to do so. Men and women showed equal resolution, and life seemed more terrible than death, if they were to be forced to leave their country. Such was this city and nation. And Titus Caesar, seeing that the position forbade an assault, or any of the more rapid operations of war, determined to proceed by earthworks and covered approaches. The legions had their respective duties assigned to them, and there was a cessation from fighting, till all the inventions used in ancient warfare or devised by modern ingenuity for the reduction of cities, were constructed. Meanwhile, Civilis, having recruited his army from Germany after his defeat among the Treveri, took up his position at the old camp, where his situation would protect him, and where the courage of his barbarian troops would be raised by the recollection of successes gained on the spot. He was followed to this place by Cerealis, whose forces had now been doubled by the arrival of the 2nd, 6th, and fourteenth legions. The auxiliary infantry and cavalry, summoned long before, had hastened to join him after his victory. Neither of the generals loved delay, but a wide extent of plain naturally saturated with water kept them apart. Civilis had also thrown a dam obliquely across the Rhine, so that the stream, diverted by the obstacle, might overflow the adjacent country. Such was the character of the district full of hidden perils from the varying depth of the fords, and unfavorable to our troops. The Roman soldier is heavily armed and afraid to swim, while the German, who is accustomed to rivers, is favored by the lightness of his equipment and the height of his stature. The Batavi provoking a conflict, the struggle was at once begun by all the boldest spirits among our troops, but a panic arose when they saw arms and horses swallowed up in the vast depths of the marshes. 
the Germans leapt lightly through the well-known shallows, and frequently quitting the front, hung on the rear and flanks of our army. It was neither the close nor the distant fighting of a land battle. It was more like a naval contest. Struggling among the waters, or exerting every limb where they found any firm footing, the wounded and the unhurt, those who could swim and those who could not, were involved in one common destruction. The loss, however, was less than might have been expected from the confusion, for the Germans, not venturing to leave the Moors, returned to the camp. The result of this battle roused both generals, though from different motives, to hasten on the final struggle. Civilis was anxious to follow up his success, Cerealis to wipe out his disgrace. The Germans were flushed with success, the Romans were thoroughly roused by shame. The barbarians spent the night in singing and shouting, our men in rage and threats of vengeance. Next morning, Cerealis formed his front with the cavalry and auxiliary infantry. In the second line were posted the legions, the general reserving a picked force for unforeseen contingencies. Civilis confronted him with his troops ranged, not in line, but in columns. On the right were the Batavi and the Gujarni. The left, which was nearer the river, was occupied by the Transrhenan tribes. The exhortations of the generals were not addressed as formal herrings to the assembled armies, but to the divisions separately as they rode along the line. Cerealis spoke of the old glory of the Roman name, of former and of recent victories. He told them that in destroying forever their treacherous, cowardly and beaten foe, they had to execute a punishment rather than to fight a battle. They had lately contended with a superior force, and yet the Germans, the strength of the hostile army, had been routed. A few were left, who carried terror in their hearts and scars upon their backs. He addressed to the several legions appropriate appeals. The fourteenth were styled the conquerors of Britain. The powerful influence of the sixth had made Galba emperor. The men of the second were in that battle first to consecrate their new standards and new eagle. Then, riding up to the army of Germany, he stretched forth his hand and implored them to recover their river bank and their camp by the slaughter of the foe. A joyful shout arose from the whole army, some of whom, after long peace, lusted for battle, while others, weary of war, desired peace. All were looking for rewards and for future repose. Nor did Civilis marshal his army in silence. He called the field of battle to bear witness to their valor. He told the Germans and Batavians that they were standing on the monuments of their glory, that they were treading underfoot the ashes and bones of legions. Wherever, he said, the Roman turns his eye, captivity, disaster, and everything that is terrible confront him. Do not be alarmed by the adverse result of the battle among the Treveri. There, their own success proved hurtful to the Germans, for, throwing away their arms, they hampered their hands with plunder. Since then, everything has been favorable to us, and against the foe. All precautions, which the skill of a general should take, have been taken. Here are these flooded plains, which we know so well, here the marshes, so fatal to the enemy. The Rhine and the gods of Germany are in your sight. Under their auspices, give battle, remembering your wives, your parents, and your fatherland. This day will either be the most glorious among the deeds of the past, or will be infamous in the eyes of posterity. These words were hailed, according to their custom, with the clash of arms and with wild antics, and then the battle was commenced by a discharge of stones, 
leaden balls, and other missiles. Our soldiers not entering the Morris, while the Germans sought to provoke, and so draw them on. When their store of missiles was spent, and the battle grew hotter, a fiercer onslaught was made by the enemy. Their tall stature and very long spears enabled them, without closing, to wound our men, who were wavering and unsteady. At the same time, a column of the Brukturai swam across from the dam, which I have described as carried out into the river. Here there was some confusion. The line of the Allied infantry was being driven back when the legions took up the contest. The fury of the enemy was checked, and the battle again became equal. At the same time, a Batavian deserter came up to Cerealis, offering an opportunity of attacking the enemy's rear if some cavalry were sent along the edge of the Morris. The ground there was firm, and the Gugerni, to whom the post had been allotted, were careless. Two squadrons were sent with the deserter, and outflanked the unsuspecting enemy. At the shout that announced the success, the legions charged in front. The Germans were routed, and fled towards the Rhine. The war would have been finished that day, if the fleet had hastened to come up. As it was, the cavalry did not pursue, for a storm of rain suddenly fell, and night was at hand. The next day, the 14th legion was sent into the upper province to join Gallus Aeneas. The 10th, which had arrived from Spain, supplied its place in the army of Cerealis. Civilis was joined by some auxiliaries from the Chaucai. Nevertheless, he did not venture to fight for the defense of the Batavian capital, but carrying off property that could be removed, and setting fire to the remainder, he retreated into the island, aware that there were not vessels enough for constructing a bridge, and that the Roman army could not cross the river in any other way. He also demolished the dike, constructed by Drusus Germanicus, and by destroying this barrier, sent the river flowing down a steep channel on the side of Gaul. The river having been thus, so to speak, diverted, the narrowness of the channel between the island and Germany created an appearance of an uninterrupted surface of dry ground. Tutor, Classicus, and one hundred and thirteen senators of the Treveri also crossed the Rhine. Among them was Alpinius Montanus, of whose mission into Gaul by Antonius I have already spoken. He was accompanied by his brother, Decimus Alpinius. His other adherents were now endeavoring to collect auxiliaries among these danger-loving tribes by appeals to their pity and their greed. The war was so far from being at an end, that Civilis, in one day, attacked on four points the positions of the auxiliary infantry and cavalry and of the legions, assailing the 10th legion at Erinacum, the second at Batavodurum, and the camp of the auxiliary infantry and cavalry at Grine and Vada, and so dividing his forces, that he himself, his sister's son Verex, Classicus and Tutor, led each his own division. They were not confident of accomplishing all these objects, but they hoped that, if they made many ventures, fortune would favor them on some point. Besides, Cerealis was not cautious, and might easily be intercepted, as the multiplicity of tidings hurried him from place to place. The force, which had to attack the tenth legion, thinking it a hard matter to storm a legionary encampment, surprised some troops who had gone out, and were busy felling timber, killed the prefect of the camp, five centurions of the first rank, and a few soldiers. The rest found shelter behind the fortifications. At Batavodurum, the German troops tried to break down the bridge partly built. Night terminated an indecisive conflict. There was great danger at Grins and Vada. Civilis attacked Vada, Classicus Grins, and they could not be checked, for our bravest men had fallen, 
among them Briganticus, who commanded a squadron of cavalry, and of whose loyalty to the Roman cause and enmity to his uncle Civilis I have already spoken. But when Cerealis came up with a picked body of cavalry, the fortune of the day changed, and the Germans were driven headlong into the river. Civilis, who was recognized while seeking to stop his flying troops, became the mark of many missiles, left his horse, and swam across the river. Varex escaped in the same way. Some light vessels were brought up and carried off Tutor and Classicus. Even on this occasion the Roman fleet was not present at the engagement, though orders had been given to that effect. Fear kept them away, and their crews were dispersed about other military duties. Cerealis, in fact, allowed too little time for executing his commands. He was hasting his plans, though eminently successful in their results. Fortune helped him, even where skill had failed, and so both the general and his army became less careful about discipline. A few days after this he escaped the peril of actual capture, but not without great disgrace. He had gone to Novesium and Bona to inspect the camps which were then in course of erection for the winter abode of the legions, and was making his way back with the fleet, his escort being in disorder and his sentries negligent. This was observed by the Germans, and they planned a surprise. They chose a dark and cloudy night, and moving rapidly down the stream, entered the entrenchments without opposition. The carnage was at first helped on by a cunning device. They cut the ropes of the tents, and slaughtered the soldiers as they lay buried beneath their own dwellings. Another force put the fleet into confusion, threw their grappling irons on the vessels, and dragged them away by the sterns. They sought at first to elude notice by silence, but when the slaughter was begun, by way of increasing the panic, they raised on all sides a deafening shout. The Romans, awakened by sounds, looked for their arms and rushed through the passages of the camp, some few with their proper accoutrements, but most with their garments wrapped round their shoulders and with drawn swords in their hands. The general, who was half asleep and all but naked, was saved by the enemy's mistake. They carried off the Praetorian vessel, which was distinguished by a flag, believing that the general was on board. Cerealis indeed had passed the night elsewhere, in the company, as many believed, of an Ubian woman, Claudia Sacrata. The sentinels sought to excuse their own scandalous neglect by the disgraceful conduct of the general, alleging that they had been ordered to be silent, that they might not disturb his rest, and that, from omitting the watchwords and the usual challenges, they had themselves fallen asleep. The enemy rode back in broad daylight with the captured vessels. The Praetorian trireme they towed up the river Lupia as a present to Veleda. Civilis was seized by a desire to make a naval demonstration. He manned all the triremes that he had, and such vessels as were propelled by a single bank of oars. To these he added a vast number of boats. He put in each three or four hundred men, the usual complement of a Liburnian galley. With these were the captured vessels, in which, picturesquely enough, plates of various colors were used for sails. The place selected was an expanse of water, not unlike the sea, where the mouth of the Mosa serves to discharge the Rhine into the ocean. The motive for equipping this fleet was, to say nothing of the natural vanity of this people, a desire to intercept, by this alarming demonstration, the supplies that were approaching from Gaul. Cerealis, more in astonishment than alarm, threw up his fleet in line, and though inferior in numbers, it had the advantage in the experience of the crews, the skill of the pilots, and the size of the vessels. The Romans had a stream with them, the enemy's vessels were propelled by the wind. Thus passing each other, 
they separated after a brief discharge of light missiles. Sevillas attempted nothing more, and retired to the other side of the Rhine. Cerealis mercilessly ravaged the island of the Batavi, but, with a policy familiar to commanders, left untouched the estates and houses of Sevillas. Meanwhile, however, the autumn was far advanced, and the river, swollen by the continual rains of the season, overflowed the island, marshy and low-lying as it is, till it resembled a lake. There were no ships, no provisions at hand, and the camp, which was situated on a low ground, was in process of being carried away by the force of the stream. That the legions might then have been crushed, and that the Germans wished to crush them, but were turned from their purpose by his own craft, was claimed as a merit by Civilis. Nor is it unlike the truth, since a capitulation followed in a few days. Cerealis, sending secret emissaries, had held out the prospect of peace to the Batavi, and of pardon to Civilis, while he advised Veleda and her relatives to change by a well-timed service to the Roman people the fortune of war, which so many disasters had shown to be adverse. He reminded them that the Treveri had been beaten, that the Ubii had submitted, that the Batavi had had their country taken from them, and that from the friendship of Civilis nothing else had been gained but wounds, defeat, and mourning. An exile and a fugitive, he could only be a burden to those who entertained him, and they had already trespassed enough in crossing the Rhine so often. If they attempted anything more, on their side would be the wrong and the guilt, with the Romans the vengeance of heaven. Thus promises were mingled with threats. When the fidelity of the Transrhenan tribes had been thus shaken, among the Batavi also there arose debates. We can no longer, they said, postpone our ruin. The servitude of the whole world cannot be averted by a single nation. What has been accomplished by destroying legions with fire and sword, but that more legions and stronger have been brought up? If it was for Vespasian that we fought this war, then Vespasian rules the world. If we meant to challenge to battle the Roman people, then what a mere fraction of the human race are the Batavi. Look at the Rhetians and Noricans, and the burdens borne by the other allies. No tribute but valor and manhood are demanded of us. This is the next thing to liberty, and if we must choose between masters, then we may more honorably bear with the emperors of Rome than with the women of the Germans. Such were the murmurs of the lower class. The nobles spoke in fiercer language. We have been driven into war, they said, by the fury of Civilis. He sought to counterbalance his private wrongs by the destruction of his nation. Then were the gods angry with the Batavi when the legions were besieged, when the legates were slain, when the war, so necessary to that one man, so fatal to us, was begun. We are at the last extremity, unless we think of repenting, and avow our repentance by punishing the guilty. These dispositions did not escape the notice of Civilis. He determined to anticipate them, moved not only by weariness of his sufferings, but also by that clinging to life which often breaks the noblest spirits. He asked for a conference. The bridge over the river Nabalia was cut down, and the two generals advanced to the broken extremities. Civilis thus opened the conference. If it were before a legate of Vitellius that I were defending myself, my acts would deserve no pardon, my words no credit. All the relations between us were those of hatred and hostility, first made so by him, and afterwards embittered by me. My respect for Vespasian is of long standing. While he was still a subject, we were called friends. This was known to Primus Antonius, whose letters urged me to take up arms, for he feared lest the legions of Germany and the youth of Gaul should cross the Alps. 
what Antonius advised by his letters, Hordionius suggested by word of mouth. I fought the same battle in Germany, as did Messianus in Syria, Aponius in Moesia, Flavianus in Pannonia. At this point, the histories break off. We do not know what happened to Civilis. The Batavians seem to have received favorable treatment. End of Book 2, Part 5 End of Tacitus' Histories Translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Broderick